If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his faults between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there, I, there am I among them. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and, went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is God's word. Thanks, Bobby. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. So, uh, yeah, so we're doing this series on reconciliation, and this, uh, this time I'm calling it Try and Try Again. So uh, after last week's sermon, the burning question in my mind, uh, confirmed by several conversations I had afterward, was, so what about when this doesn't work? Um, what do you do? How should you feel when you try to reconcile and it doesn't go well? And the answer is, you, you failed. Um, go back and fix it. No, that's not the answer. I read the wrong cue card there. Um, right? That would, just, that would be a mean thing to say. That's, it's, uh, that's not at all what the scripture says. Um, this scripture seems to lean in, in the absolute other direction. At try, try again. Um, this was a burning question for me because to this day, I feel the real weight of having situations that are not solved or cleaned up or cleared up or fixed in my own life. And I suspect I'll never be out from under that weight entirely in my lifetime. I don't have the control to make it happen, no matter how much I may want to. And last week, uh, when we entered into the, the beginning of this evening's text in, in Matthew 18, uh, and if, if you missed that, by the way, I would, uh, I would recommend you go back and, and check it out, because I think this all has to come together. 
Um, we looked that at the context leading into this passage and the disciples, they'd seen and heard this incredible testimony that Jesus was no ordinary rabbi. They were coming to believe he was sent from God, carrying the power of God. They'd experienced something called the transfiguration, which is where they saw Jesus in a glorified state, which is beyond my comprehension. They'd seen him um, deliver an epileptic uh, who, who actually had a demon possession, um, and they had been unable to do it. Jesus had done it for them. And in light of all that, there arose a, a kind of a quarrel between them about who was the greatest, and Jesus responded in several ways. And one of the important practical teachings he responded with was this teaching on reconciliation, followed by the parable that Bobby just read to us about the, uh, the unforgiving servant. So he taught them about reconciliation and forgiveness. Uh, we looked at the fact that Jesus is inviting us, actually, not, not away from hard conversations, but actually into what could become conflict. Um, he's inviting us toward our brothers and sisters with the issues that we have, and that opens up the, the possibility, actually, um, that you might have to enter into conflict to work things out, and the fact that it might take many attempts. The parable seems to point to uh, you might need to do this over and over. It, it may never, you may never solve it. It may never all get cleaned up. Um, it's ideal, we, we mentioned, that you could talk to somebody about it right away, as Jesus mentions, and win your brother, that you would talk to them and, and it would clear up really quickly, like the, the simplest meaning of don't let the sun go down on your anger. Uh, but we also talked about how sometimes it's not that simple and how that, that metaphor of the sun going down on your anger might be a, a lifetime, um, just to be, be really cognizant to do everything you can within your lifetime uh, to work things out with people. So I want to go through these, uh, through these three ideas that um, I believe Jesus is actually telling us um, that it's possible this might not work. Second, that it is good for us in our attempt to reconcile with people to get help, that help is in order, and that the third time is not the charm. Um, he did not give us a, well, I'll get into that. Third time is not the charm. Um, we want plans that work, right? Uh, we want a three-step process with guaranteed results. But the answer to that burning question from last week, what do we do when this doesn't work out, is actually built into Jesus' teaching, but he does not give us a three-step process to successful conflict resolution. That is not what this is. He gives us three pathways that are increasingly difficult, and then he, then he gives us a parable and a story that expands it even further. Um, these three pathways in this parable assume that oftentimes the attempt to reconcile doesn't work, and that's frustrating to me. Um, it's a slight relief because I know that's how it really is sometimes. It would be slightly harder to read, here are the three steps, and if you take them, they're going to work. And for me to reflect on my own life and say, I have tried the three, and it didn't work. Many of us have tried and tried to get right with someone, only to find that the desired result is somewhat elusive. And this can go down in many ways. Number one, um, the relationship may continue, but, but change, like shift even slightly. Uh, perhaps you know, uh, the addressing of it actually produces the shift. I mentioned a, a story between Paul and Barnabas, where Paul and Barnabas, um, this is in the book of Acts, 
there's this moment where they, um, there's just been a big discussion in the church, a big moment of kind of conflict and unity. And in the wake of that big conflict, um, Paul and Barnabas have a discussion and they're two leaders in the church. And uh, their discussion goes something like this. Why don't we go encourage the, uh, the churches that we visited in the past? Like, just this, is, this seems like a very benign moment. Like, let's go encourage people. What a great idea. And uh, Barnabas wants to bring a, a man named John Mark, and Paul feels that John Mark has been a, a difficult travel companion, and they end up in a sharp disagreement, and they, and they end up not working together for years over this. Um, if they hadn't talked about it, if they hadn't had the conversation that clarity, I mean, something would have happened, but the, the, their addressing of it actually ended up making them decide not to work together for some time. It didn't necessarily fix it right away. But they, I believe, still considered each other to be brothers. Um, they considered each other Christians. Um, I think they would have said, yeah, we're on, the, we're on the same page in many ways. We just don't see eye to eye on how to do this. And so they, they didn't work together. Um, the, re the relationship may get uh, temporarily worse or even sever completely. That's another possibility. Um, anyone who's done the hard work of attempting reconciliation, you know that sometimes the conflict pushes you apart in, in profound ways. Not slight, but significant. The other party may choose not to keep participating. You may want to participate in reconciliation to a degree that someone else does not want to do. And sometimes they shouldn't because of something you're doing that they cannot handle. They get to choose. Just like you get to choose to engage, they can choose whether or not they will engage to the same level. There are always layers to every conflict, right? Sometimes you find, um, you may find even in yourself that in a conflict, you think the thing, the issue is one thing, but for the other person, it's about more than that. That happens. Um, and maybe they can't process what you two are going through until they've worked out the other layer that they're dealing with. And you may not be able to understand that. Let's, let's engage in a little creative speculation with Paul and Barnabas here. Just maybe this will help open some stuff up for you. You know, it seems so simple, right? They want to go, go encourage the churches that they'd visited, but Barnabas wants to take this guy, John Mark, and Paul doesn't like him. That's how it feels, right? He says, ah, he's not nice to travel with. Um, but we actually know a, a little fact, another layer of this story. It, it pops up in the book of Colossians, actually, that Barnabas and John Mark are related. They're cousins. So Barnabas... He doesn't just have like a connection to John Mark, like fellow Christian. They're in the same family. He's probably seen him more throughout his life, probably knows more about him. Probably has a deeper sense of wanting to see him be a part of this than Paul does, right? And then Paul, uh, from what we can gather in the scriptures, he's a, he's a very driven person. I mean, this is, a, this is like your type A type of person. And not only that, he has one of the most intense conversion stories ever recorded. Um, like Paul is not a, a man of, of, you know, a quiet nature and nuance. He is, a, he is a powerful leader who's had an intense conversion. He has a deep sense. We have to get things done. He, in other books, talks about his sense that like, this has to get done in my lifetime, this work. 
Now, how do you assume, how could we assume that these layers factor into their disagreement, right? It's not as simple as like, is John Mark a good guy? For Barnabas, it's John Mark his family. For Paul, there's the depth and the seriousness of the task and how this is getting in the way. There are all these other layers. And maybe they can't even talk about John Mark when they, they haven't figured out kind of how they feel about some of this other stuff. And in this moment, the discussion that they had one another made things, in, from a relational standpoint, temporarily worse. They couldn't travel together. Sometimes time leads to reflection and repentance, and you can come back to somebody after a while. And sometimes you talk to somebody and try to work something out, and you figure out you're just not going to work together that well. It's not a good fit. Um, these, these three pathways to reconciliation, sometimes what can happen is you can actually do, say, just one of them, realize you don't need to do the other two, but you're also not going to be doing things at the same level you thought you would. Like, you might talk to somebody and you say, look, um, you know, every time you walk, you kick me in the foot, and it drives me crazy. And the person says, that's just how I walk. And you go, but it drives me crazy. And they go, I can't do anything about it. I can't see my feet. I have a really big beard, you know? And, right? And, and you just, and you go, okay, like, I'm not mad at you. I mean, do you see, this is a stupid story, but what I'm saying is, it's, there's no fault. It's, you're just different. You could conclude that. You don't need to take them to the elders, but you might go, huh, we just, we're just different. And sometimes, sadly, you'll try and things will get tough and you won't see it re resolve in being the perfect happy situation. And that is sad, but it's going to happen. You may not even get to step one of Matthew 18 because people are allowed to choose. You might call somebody and say, I really want to talk to you. We have a, something between us and they can actually say no. It doesn't always work. So the relationship may continue to exist, but, but shift slightly. It may get worse or even sever, or it may continue to exist, but go in a completely different, become a completely different category of relationship. We actually see that in Matthew 18. Matthew 18 starts by saying, if your brother, if your brother sins against you, that's like a familial relationship. Actually, he's talking about if you're in the same faith community, if you consider yourself brothers and sisters in, in the faith. And at the end of these three options, he says, you might have to treat this other person as if they're a tax collector and a sinner. And that means this, this, the relationship has gone from category one to category two. It used to be a brother-sister familial relationship. Now it has become like a believer to a tax collector, a sinner. Now, I've heard it said, and I think this is very wise, that when we hear Jesus say, treat someone like a tax collector and a sinner, we have to ask, how did Jesus treat tax collectors and sinners? That's pretty important. And we happen to know that actually Jesus was accused of being sinful himself because of how much time he spent with tax collectors and sinners. He would spend time with them. He would eat with them. He would welcome them in. But he knew he was welcoming somebody in toward the relationship with God. He wasn't dealing with somebody who was a worshiper of God. It was a different category of relationship. One of the historic ways the church has done this is to say that while you're unreconciled or you're not following after Jesus, you're not repentant, 
is that you're welcome to be here and listen and connect with us, but you can't come forward and take the Lord's Supper. That's one way the church has done it. And see, that's not to say you're shunned or you're shamed, and people have tried that too, right? But it's to say that you need to be clear with yourself and others if you're willing to walk with Jesus into this reconciliation, if you're willing to walk in a repentant spirit. And if you're not, you don't want to come here and claim the grace of Jesus and that you are walking in that. It's a requirement that you, you examine yourself. Um, so these are the possibilities Jesus assumes, right? He taught his disciples to pursue reconciliation, but it's not a three-step process to successful reconciliation. It's three pathways, increasingly difficult, to attempt reconciliation, and none of them are given a guarantee that they're going to work. And Jesus knows this. He is upfront with this. I, I appreciate that Jesus doesn't overpromise success. Um, look, many people who encountered and knew Jesus did not become his followers and would have remained in a state of what would not look like friendship with Jesus or even that he was their teacher. Now, I want to pair this with John's encouragement from two weeks ago that we can hope for reconciliation. We come here wanting to hope. We must hold on to hope, but we have to move forward with our best resources in, in play, these pathways that Jesus has given us and realize this is not a guaranteed fix, okay? So that's our first big idea, just to lay that out there. And, and many of you, if you've moved into trying to work through relationships, you know it's not always a guarantee. So help is in order. That's our next big idea. And by way of reminder, I want to peer back into Matthew 18. It says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. That was last week. But... If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Okay. Um, what does that mean? Uh, we, have to, we have to look into this a bit to understand this. Uh, why one or two? Where does this come from? Did Jesus just make this up? And why is the goal that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses? Does that little piece strike you? Doesn't it just doesn't flow? doesn't flow well. Where's that coming from? And if you don't understand this, uh, you'll miss the depth. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a little, uh, a little Bible basics moment here. So if you're, if you're reading a paper Bible or you're looking online, um, you would, uh, you, you'll see these little letters. Here there's a, a tiny letter P, and you see this little box above it. And that's a reference. And so the, in almost, almost any print Bible and online, you can find this reference. And so if you look, if you see a little letter like that, you can go down to the bottom of your page or there'll be a center column in your page and it will give you a list of scriptures that this is, uh, is referring to or where the same, same concept arises. Online, you hover over the P usually. You'd hover over the little letter. And here we see several other moments in the Bible where this you know, evidence of two or three witnesses thing is referenced. And the key one, the first one, it lists it because it's the most prominent, is Deuteronomy 19, 19.15. And in this case, this little clue that the modern book gives you is really, really helpful because Jesus is indeed quoting from this ancient law book of Israel's people called Deuteronomy and he is quoting that, which is why it feels a little out of place. It's a direct quote. 
And in this case, it shows us that this is not just an incidental idea that Jesus is sharing. He's quoting an Old Testament law. In fact, it's actually a quote from Israel's judicial process for reporting crime. And so I'm going to read you a piece of it right now. This is out of Deuteronomy 19. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or any wrong, any wrong in connection with an offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. So this is judicial law that Jesus is quoting. Now, in the Western mind, we balk at this a bit because we think, wait, that, if, if that's judicial national law, why is Jesus mixing that with how you would behave in the church? He's taking national judicial law and he's mixing it into how his disciples behave together in a religious community. Aren't we conflating like church and state? That's, you might think that if you've, if you've been pretty shaped by American religion. Now, maybe, maybe that's not you, but you're thinking, I know a little bit about history. And during this time when Jesus said these things, they're actually not under Jewish legislative law per se. They are under Roman law. The Roman judicial system is actually what they're under. So not only are they conflating church and state, they're referring to the law of a state that isn't even operational over their daily lives. What's going on with that? Why would Jesus do that? And now this is actually a really interesting moment, and, it, and it's an instance where we learn that many of God's designs in the Old Testament for the people of Israel were particular to his people, and he was meaning for them not only to apply it as a nation, but for them to learn to self-govern under the same principles, no matter what nation they were in. And the Jewish people, as they scattered out throughout the world, they would still refer to these things. And to some degree, they believed that they should self-govern under the wisdom and principles of God. And it's also true that all Christian traditions, I, I don't know of I, very few, if any, would believe that there's no application of God's laws from the Old Testament to today. There's some difference in, in how. And, but this is a moment where Jesus pulls from that Old Testament judicial system and says, I want you to apply this even within your churches, even, I would say, in your relationships, okay? So um, this here is a, is a really key moment where we see that shift. So his people, this is basically Jesus affirming something, that he wants his people to be committed to him as if he is their king and their ruler, even if they are under another ruler's reign. They want them to be committed to him as their king and their ruler, even if they're under another ruler's reign. And so that's why he draws this government principle and he's moving his people in the direction. He's saying, I want you to establish yourselves under the, the wisdom I gave you under the, the nation of Israel. It's not just an idea. It's an established method. And in fact, it's enfolded into most of our societies today. So how could this expand our, our understanding of the Bible right here? Well, here's how it expands it. It means when Jesus tells us to go get two or three witnesses, he is not giving us a random strategy, but he's tying it to a governing principle. And it means this, that if you do it incorrectly, 
What you're doing is you're building maybe a coalition for yourself of people to enforce your way of thinking or to put pressure on somebody you disagree with to agree with you. God's intent was actually to protect the accused person. Because when you read this law and you understand this law, the law was designed to protect the accused person, not to build a coalition for you. Now, we often can get this wrong. If you don't understand this law, this ancient law, you could get this wrong. Because say somebody, you know, I confess to John that I'm mad at Dante, okay? So just picking on this side of the room. And John goes, yeah, yeah, Dante, he is pretty lame. You know what? Let's get Mike and Jared, and we're all going to go talk to Dante. And we all kind of team up with Dante, and, and they all say, Dante, yeah, you know, you really do. You're, you're annoying, you know? And we all and we kind of enforce that and put that pressure upon it. That is not at all what Jesus intends. And that law, that ancient law shows that. That law was designed to protect the acute. It's designed to protect Dante because I have an accusation against him. It's to bring some other people who are impartial, who can hear this out and protect the person who's being, who's being accused. And that's why we need to look into it. We have to ask these questions when we read the Bible because otherwise we can make a mistake and actually go absolutely against what it says. Basically, Jesus is saying you need discerning listeners. This is more gravity. They would have felt more gravity by hearing him quote Deuteronomy they would not have assumed, take a friend with you and talk to somebody. Take, take a buddy so that somebody can you know, witness this and make sure you get it right. They would have assumed it was far more serious than that. It would mean involve discerning listeners who are able and willing to hear both parties and give guidance to them both and protect the accused. And those people would have been within the community. And why is that? Why would they have been within the community because the assumption is these people would know both parties and be able to apply what they knew about both of these parties to help guide them. They would be applying wisdom. They would say, we know your lives, we know your character, we know who you are. And they'd be able to apply this. Do you, do you see some wisdom in this? Even our modern legal systems strive for this. That's why you have character witnesses and impartial judges and juries you know what came before all of those modern inventions of the state? The book of Deuteronomy. And Jesus is saying, these are my principles, and they're good. So when we can't gain our brother or sister by just going to them, Jesus says, don't give up, but also don't coerce and build a coalition. Bring one or two discerning listeners with you. Get some help. Get some impartial support to make sure this moves in the direction of justice. Help is in order, and Jesus invites us to use a wise method for getting help. Um, I actually want to read a little more from this law code so you can see and sense the depth of the wisdom in it and its protective aim. It goes further, so I'm going to read the whole thing. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or any wrong in connection with an offense he has committed. Only on the evidence of two, or two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priest and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, discerning listeners. And if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear 
and never again commit any such evil among you, the bearing of false witness. Your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Whoa, we've heard that part, haven't we? An eye for an eye. I was tempted to cut that line off. When I was pasting this out of my digital Bible, I was tempted to cut that off because it sounds brutal. And I thought, ah, it's not really making the point. But guess what? It's there. And it actually leads us right into the tension we need to engage as we consider what to do when it doesn't work again. It leads us into that tension. So the final big idea I have is the third time is not the charm. I touched on this last week, and um, we probably need to every single one of the weeks because the parable that follows these pathways is crucial. So Peter, um, after hearing this, he says, so how many times do I have to go through this? Up to seven times? And I have just a quick acknowledgement to Josh and Jules. Remember when we were at lunch and I said, oh, the three times he said this parallels with the three? Yeah, I created something in my mind there, and I was like way off. So Anyway, just disregard that whole conversation at lunch. Um, Because he said, how many times am I supposed to do this? Up to seven? Now, that sounds like a lot of times through such a process. That's 21 times. Like, how many times would I try these three pathways? Seven? That's a lot. That'd be a lot with one person, wouldn't it? Can you imagine that? Going through these three steps, maybe bringing it all the way up to the to the church and getting all this discernment involved, doing that seven times with a person? That sounds like a lot of times. And Jesus says, no. And then there's a little, there's a little textual variant in here, depending on if you read it in the Greek or the, um, the Greek translation of the Hebrew or the Hebrew. He either says, no, you need to do it 77 times, or some translations say 77-fold. Either way, that's a lot, because you got to times it by three, Okay. But even more important than the number is that Jesus is again quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting a moment in the book of Genesis when humanity is spiraling into chaos due to murder and vengeance. It tails on the story of Cain and Abel, where a brother has just killed his brother. And now there's a great leader in the world. His name is Lamech. And he's leading a society who has gone past flourishing into utter domination. He's a city builder with a taste for blood. And he has just moved past justice into vengeful warfare. And he says this, if Cain was avenged sevenfold, then I, Lamech, shall be avenged sevenfold. And that, if you're looking for a band name, has already been taken. (laughs) I will be avenged sevenfold. Um, It's as if Jesus, in referring to this, is saying this. He's saying, you know the most profound moment when vengeance took hold of the, of the world? I want my people to be so committed to forgiveness that they're as committed as Lamech was to vengeance. It's almost like, I don't know, like in our day, it'd be like, do you know how committed Vladimir Putin is to domination? I want you to be that known for forgiveness. That's what Jesus is saying. He's drawing a parallel. He's saying, find the most vindictive world ruler you can find and be like them in your commitment to reconciliation. Can you imagine what that would be like? 
In a personal life, what could that mean? That would mean that our, we as people, not that we'd be known for being perfect, but that we would be known for being more committed to reconciliation than we were to winning arguments and evening the scales. To follow Jesus, we would be more committed to forgiveness and reconciliation than to winning arguments and ensuring justice. We must be more steadfast in our pursuit of forgiveness and reconciliation than we are to holding grudges and make pe making people pay for what they've done. And we should be so known for that that we get entered into the annals of history as forgiving and reconciling sevenfold. Do our lives bear out this way? When you see or hear from the person who has offended you, which truth is revealed? That we lean toward reconciliation or that our leaning is to make someone pay? An eye for an eye. Now you may say, wait, but what about Deuteronomy 19? It did say an eye for an eye. It said an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, hand for a hand, a foot for a foot. What about fairness and justice? Isn't that in the Bible too? And the answer is yes. Yes, it is. But if you meditate on God's law, the more you read it, you see that there are two movements of God's law. God clearly defines the path of justice and what we deserve. We do deserve an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. If you are a false witness against somebody and you're trying to get them put in jail, you deserve to be in jail, even if you haven't done anything else. That the law says it, and it's true, you do. But the other movement of the law is that God is always providing a pathway for redemption and the atonement of your sin. And that part of the law gets so much more time and space, I don't even know how to describe it. That little eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth moment is absolutely overwhelmed by the amount of pathways Jesus makes or God makes in the Old Testament for you to be reconciled and for your sins to be covered over. That movement of the law is so massive. Now see, we need both. But the heart of God is bent toward forgiveness and reconciliation. Without an understanding of justice, without statements defining right and wrong and what we deserve, we cannot receive grace for what it is. As a church, I want us to stay steadfastly committed to saying what God's law says about things and holding to it. We must, or else we diminish what grace is. Grace is a costly gift that requires God to release the right demands of his justice toward us and to actually aim them at his son as he hung on a cross. It's not cheap. It's not easy. It's not enough to say, ah, people don't mean to do bad things. The person didn't mean to hurt me. It's they, you know, they grew up in an unjust system. Listen, when, when you're like someone you love has been killed, I guarantee it doesn't matter how that person was raised or what happened. Like they took a life. They took your friend's life, right? We know intuitively this stuff matters, if it didn't matter, it wouldn't be so costly to forgive. But what do we do with that tension? Injustice and offense are wrong. They hurt, they deserve punishment, and they matter. But the heart of God bends toward reconciliation, and he calls us to emphasize and enact reconciliation too. 
Well, Jesus didn't only refer to the beginning of Deuteronomy 19. In his Sermon on the Mount, he also taught about the end. So we should probably look to Jesus here as well. We misread this part too, unfortunately. In Matthew 5 on the Sermon on the Mount, this was, uh, this was not one servant sermon on a mount, most likely. It's pretty clear to most scholars that this is a collection of Jesus' most regular and prominent teachings that he probably taught over and over again that are collected um, in some way. He probably did teach them all at the same time, but he probably taught them throughout his three years. But here, here in Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount, key teaching, he says this, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. He's referring to Deuteronomy 19. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, I'm afraid we read this often simply to mean when somebody does something bad to you, roll over and just let them do it again. And that um, can be really frustrating. A lot of your Bibles, um, a lot of you know, my Bible, there's a little heading above this section that says retaliation. Now, by the way, that is not part of the original text. Anytime you see those headings and the numbers and stuff, they're not there in the original text. That's something we've added to kind of organize things. And sometimes that can mislead us. The beginning of this section, you know, if I were to give it a name, I would put something like restorative action. Because I think we tend to read it non-retaliation on accident. I think it should be restorative action. Because a, cursor, a cursory cultural study draws, draws out that the three prominent things he mentions here are movements that are not passive, but active. If you were slapped on the right cheek, that was the relationship, or that was the way a master would slap a slave in their day. To, hurt, to turn to them to the left was to demand equal treatment. The cloak was the outer garment. If someone were to sue you unjustly and take your outer garment, they say to take off your tunic as well. That would be to strip naked. Nobody would take you to court to strip you naked. In their culture, that was utter, utterly shameful to do. That would be an act of you exhibiting to them the shameful thing that they had done to you. A Roman soldier in the time of Jesus's words was allowed to force a citizen to carry their pack one mile, but they were restricted from requiring a citizen to carry their pack a second mile. They would have begged and pleaded for you to drop their pack while you trudged forward with it as they argued with you. These actions were far from passive. What's Jesus teaching us? He's giving us further and deeper wisdom to pursue the transformation of even our enemies. This is the wisdom that we've seen in such things as the civil rights movement under Dr. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. This is a disturbing image. This was in the news. Martin Luther King knew that when they marched peacefully that there would be attack, that they would suffer. He taught the people as they were preparing to go exactly what was possible. Their life might be demanded of them. But his aim, and he was clear on this, was not only to disrupt things, but to expose the evil 
of what was being done in our society for the transformation of the perpetrators of the evil, in this case, these officers, and for the people who were being harmed. He wanted the transformation of the America that mistreated him as well. And he was clear to tell people that that's exactly what would happen. Martin Luther King Jr.'s peaceful marches were not passive. They were profound. They opened our eyes to the evils at work within our society, even within our own hearts. And it didn't always work. It was costly. Many lives were lost, but it was far more powerful than an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The Bible's law captures this power, and Jesus teaches it to us. It's one thing to bring fairness. It's one thing to bring an eye for an eye. But there's a more powerful principle at work in which we see the truth about who we really are and are confronted with what it means to have light shown on that truth. The third time is not the charm. Getting through these pathways may not work. You may need to go through them over and over. You may even have to engage more creatively. Back then, there was the principle of turn the other cheek. MLK, like Martin Luther King Jr., did peaceful marches. You might have to be more creative in asking the question, what would it look like to bring into the open the shame of what's going on in another soul with a redemptive purpose? But consider the power of a community that lives out these radical commitments to restorative action and reconciliation. Deuteronomy 19 said this, when the community saw the wisdom of the judicial process of God, they would hear and fear, and they would purge the evil from their midst. This is far more than just they would fear and like shake in their boots. It's more like they would see the wisdom in this judicial process, and they would have a reverence and an awe and a deep respect, and it would transform who they were to the core. When our world looks back on the power of the civil rights movement, it looks back with reverence because it had a flavor of the wisdom of God. It was powerful in exposing injustice and profound in its rejection of returning evil for evil and in its seeking of the restoration of its enemies. May the same be true of us as we live our lives before a watching world. May the depth of our commitment to reconcile both expose and inspire those who long for a world filled with peace and justice. May our commitment to reconciliation and forgiveness bear witness to the costly grace of Jesus. May we be a community more committed to reconciliation than the nations are committed to any of their deepest values, more than the most brutal nations are to vengeance and winning, more than our enemies are in shaming us and being right. The cross of Jesus exhibited everything that Jesus taught. People deserve an eye for an eye. The last resort of the law, of the Old Testament law, was the death penalty. 
And you can tell it's the last resort. There are so many pathways to try to restore before it comes. But its last resort is the death penalty. Jesus took the death penalty. In doing so, he did not become passive. He exposed our injustice while making a way for us to be reconciled to God. Listen to how Paul the Apostle described it in Colossians 2. He said this, 13 to 15, You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Jesus, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Do you hear the judicial language? This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, those demands upon us. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. When Jesus hung on the cross, he was not passive. The cross was costly, a place where our sins were paid for, but it isn't passive. It makes us confront the ways we want to rule and enforce authority. It exposes our shame so that when we go into reconciliation with others, we know we are not on the moral high ground. The walk to this table is an admission of great guilt and a need of infinitely costly mercy. It exposes us in that the law demands an eye for an eye, and those demands were exacted upon the innocent Son of God. It's a call to reconcile because in the cross, we were reconciled to God in Christ and we are sent out from this table, transformed by our own exposure, but covered by the mercy of our creative and transforming Savior. I'm going to pray now. Um, there will be two minutes of silence after this just to consider these things, I would encourage us to consider how committed we are to reconciliation. That's what challenged me in uh, preparing this sermon when I thought about how committed the nations are to winning and how committed I am to moving into reconciliation. Um, I find myself quite lacking and I would encourage us to think about these things. After that, we're going to do the three weekly acts that we uh, do as well, as well as other Christian churches all throughout the world. We're going to take the Lord's Supper together. I've framed this for us. Who is it for? It's for those who can see their guilt, admit their need, and accept the free and gracious acceptance they have in Jesus to move into a, a life and a ministry of reconciliation. Uh, we're going to sing together. That's where we take these uh, great truths of our faith and we try to let them sink down deep. Um, we memorize them, we hear them in song, so they're stuck in our bones. And then we're going to give. Um, this is a, a profound way of saying to God, God, you have given us everything we have, life and breath and everything. Um, and we are going to acknowledge you by investing in this ministry of reconciliation that belongs to you. And we're going to give back. So now as we, uh, as we pray, I'm going to leave two minutes of silence after that. And that time's for you, just to lift your hearts to God, um, to come before him and to ask him to uh, help us as we seek this ministry of reconciliation. Let's pray. 
Father, I, uh, I am grateful to be here with these people. This, um, this call is, is difficult. You call us into like this never-ending pattern of reconciliation. It's as if you tell us, um, don't ever give up that even your enemy might one day be your friend. It's as if you're saying to us, don't ever assume that I can't transform the heart of someone who's hurt you. We are afraid that you will not finish your just work. We are afraid of injustice for ourselves. We are afraid to trust this into your hands. We're afraid of hope. God, would you help us to see the profoundly powerful ways you've worked upon our hearts? The only reason we can utter your name is because you've forgiven us of a mountain of sins. Teach us to be not like that unmerciful servant, but like one who realizes how great our debt is and gives mercy freely. So lead us now as we pray.